All right. Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. A passage that has been in front of me since we began this series about a year ago. I've been anticipating it with fear and trembling. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) On Thursday, I came home from the office this week and got to tell my wife, I didn't get a headache today. That's how difficult it's been studying this passage. Uh, It's a difficult passage in many respects, but we're going to seek to understand it together. 1 Corinthians 11.2, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. The, would the men come up and grab these baskets who I spoke to before the service? I'm, I'm giving you a gift to start out <laughs> today's message. That's how you start by telling people bad news, right, as you give them a, a gift first. Um, I, there should be one for each adult. That should be good. One for each adult. I don't know if there's enough for children, but we'll start one for each adult. Um, you'll need to start here today. Um, I got up this morning before my alarm went off in anticipation for today, and uh, we'll, we'll start off with going over some basic principles about what we believe about the Word of God and our hearts toward the Word of God. Now, next week, we'll address the questions that we all have regarding this chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. If you came here today for the fireworks of what to do with hair length and physical head coverings, we're not going to cover that today. That's next week. Um, But let me tell you this, that I don't believe you'll be equipped to handle next week's message to understand those issues if we don't get through what's before us today. And so the goal today is to look at Paul's arguments, start to look at Paul's arguments to see how he's forming his argument in this chapter. And before we can start to do that, we need to go through some basic things about the Word of God and our hearts and minds toward the Word of God. If you look at that little card I gave you, which perhaps could serve as a bookmark in the future that you could keep with your uh, Bible, first thing I want us to remember is that the Bible is the Word of God. God has spoken, and He has preserved His Word. He's preserved His message for us. The Bible is the Word of God. It's not the Word of humans. It's the Word of God. That's the first thing that we need to remember. Secondly, and this is the one, only one I've personalized, The Bible has full authority over me. If you're a Christian and you believe the Bible is the Word of God, that statement is for you. The Bible has full authority over you. Our thinking and our living must be directed by the Word of God, shouldn't it? Our thoughts and our actions. Thirdly, the Bible is understandable. Now, of course, there are varying degrees of difficulty in the Bible. It's not like I'm up here saying, hey, the Bible's easy, just read it, and you'll know exactly what every verse means. Just read it. No, that's not quite it. However, God didn't give us a book of gibberish, did He? He didn't give us an incoherent word. He didn't give us a contradictory word. He gave us an understandable word. Fourthly, the Bible should not be apologized for. Now, this goes for every Christian, but especially for Christian pastors. And hopefully one thing you won't hear me say is, I'm sorry as we go through this text together. Because this isn't my word, this is God's word, right? And as we are unpacking God's word, seeking to understand the message that He has for us and apply it rightly, I'm not up here preaching myself, but I'm preaching God's word. And so if you have a disagreement, take it up with the one who wrote it, all right? Fifth, honesty with the text is the only acceptable aim. As we approach the Word of God, we should aim to be honest with the text in every way. False witness is an abomination to the Lord. And so if we have anything in our hearts that would say, I'll just twist this or twist that, we need to reject it. We see that happen all the time. People take Bible passages and verses out of context and things of that nature. Well, honesty has to be our aim. Now, that's not to say we're going to interpret it rightly and that we're all going to agree with the interpretation all the time, but we must have our goal, each one of us, to be honesty with what God is saying. Let's just hear what He has to say. 
Sixth, feelings should never get in the way. Personal feelings or fear never justifies rejection of Scripture. Sometimes someone will read something in the Bible and think, well, that just feels weird, that feels off. Well, that doesn't justify rejection of what it says, does it? The Word of God says what it says, and we're to fear God above all else. So our personal feelings don't justify rejection of Scripture. And seventh, we must be willing to obey before we are, we are sure of the interpretation. Willingness to obey comes before understanding what the text says. As we approach the Bible, and as we approach the New Testament, and we hear directives for the church, our heart needs to be, whatever you're instructing me to do, God, I'm willing to do it. Our hearts shouldn't be, well, let me see what this says first, and then I'll decide if I want to obey. That should never be our heart. There are some people out there who don't understand baptism, for example. And I know some Christians who refuse to be baptized because they just don't understand why. You may never have all the answers that you need for all the why questions that you have in life. There are lots of why questions that we have. And sometimes we just need to take the Word of God for what it is because He is God and we are not. I say sometimes, all the time. The law of Christ directs our thinking and our living even when we don't understand the why. So, having all of that with us, let's transition into the text today. I gave you a mint. Did you catch that? Um, my mother-in-law, often when she sits down at church service, will pop a mint in because it helps her stay alert. So, I gave you a mint. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, today's message will be a, a bit longer <laughs> of a message, and we won't just be swimming in waters, we'll be swimming in some deep waters today. So, go ahead and grab that mint. And and it's also a kind of a science experiment because I want to see what the room smells like at the end when we sing. Uh, so go ahead and make your breath all minty and we'll see if that has any effect, okay? <clears throat> but getting into chapter 11, starting with verse 2, we left off with verse 1 last week, but verse 2, the Apostle Paul offers the Corinthians a rare bit of praise here. He says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions. The Corinthians had carried on at least some of what Paul had taught them. Now, we have been going through and seeing all kinds of flaws that the Corinthian church had, and here we're seeing something that's not a flaw. He praises them because they were carrying on some of what he had taught them. The details of what that is are largely unknown. We don't know all the details of what they carried on and what they dropped, but at least in some of the things, it was praiseworthy the way they hung on to what Paul had taught them as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we do know this also, that Paul only passed on to them that which he was taught from the Lord Jesus. Same chapter, look down at verse 23. Chapter 11, verse 23, we'll cover this in a few weeks. Paul says, "'For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus and the night He was betrayed.'" And he goes on to explain the Lord's table. But Paul received from the Lord that which he delivered to the Corinthians. What Paul taught the Corinthians is what he learned from Jesus himself. That's a part of Paul's testimony. You can read about that in Galatians 1 and 2 and in the book of Acts. He was instructed by Christ, and that's what he passed on to the Corinthians. So we know that they held on to some things. We know that they were also lacking in some areas and some major ways, as we've seen so far in this letter. And he writes to them, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions. But then he starts verse 3 by saying, but I want you to understand. And so he's either teaching them something new that he hadn't taught them before, or he's filling in one of those gaps that they had left behind. He says, I want you to understand this, that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So let's spend some time talking about and thinking through headship. That's what verse 3 is all about. And we have a difficulty right off the bat. Something about chapter 11, at least the first uh, 16 verses, is that we run into a, an interpretive difficulty with about every single verse. And you'll find commentators who believe something different on about every single verse. Verse 3 is no exception, where Paul is using metaphorically the word head. He says that Christ is the head of every man and so on. Well, in this metaphorical use of head, we know that he's physically not the head of every man. Does that mean that he's 
the origin or source of every man, like the fountainhead or the head of a river? Or does it mean that He's the authority head of every man? And whatever we say about that first phrase, Christ is the head of every man, well, that certainly would apply to the next two phrases as well. So, people grapple with this. They wrestle with what this could mean. Well, I believe this is speaking of authority. It flows with Paul's argument through the rest of this passage and even the rest of this letter. Now, Origen certainly plays into it. He is the author of creation, as we just sung about. However, he is the Lord of every man, as we also sang about. He's the authority. And Paul makes similar points in his other letters that are similar to the phrasing here, that Christ is the authority of all people. He's not just the source, but He's the authority. And we have to talk about origin to understand authority, so the two concepts are pretty closely tied together. But the two examples that we see of Christ here in verse 3, that He's the Lord of every man and that God is His head, these certainly have to do with authority. It's saying more than Christ is the source of all people, which may be true, He is the Lord of all people. Turn with me in this same letter to chapter 15 to see this same thought. Chapter 15, starting at verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ that is coming. Verse 24, Then comes the end when He, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God and to the God and Father, which he has abolished all, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for He has put all things in subjection under His feet. This is obviously talking about Christ being the authority over all things in the earth. This is His kingdom. Christ is in charge, and He abolishes His enemies because He has all authority and all power. There are other places in the New Testament where we see this too. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Ephesians 1, 22, speaking of the church, it says, "...and He put all things in subjection under His, Christ's feet." and gave Him as head over all things to the church. We would certainly agree that not only is Christ the origin or the source of the church, but He's also the authority over the church, isn't He? He's the chief shepherd. And in Colossians 2, 8 through 10, Colossians chapter 2 says, "...see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ." For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Talking about in Christ. And in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. Christ is truly Lord of all, isn't He? We can proclaim that. That's the Christian's testimony, that Christ is the head, the authority, the Lord of every man. Now, in our text today, in 1 Corinthians eleven three, you'll see that it's using the term Christ, which, of course, means Messiah. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And so, the incarnation is particularly in view here. And it's true that in His incarnation, through His work on the earth, His dying on the cross and His rising from the dead, He has proven that He is Lord over all. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. As He came in the flesh, there was something about that gospel work that particularly proved His lordship over all, over every single man. Now, out of the three phrases that we find in verse 3, that's probably the one that's the easiest for us to understand and certainly the easiest one for us to swallow, <laughs> that Christ is the Lord of every man. He's the head of every man. Well, what do we do with these other two phrases? Let's look at the last one, that God is the head of Christ. You can make a lot of mistakes theologically when you go to interpret this verse. God is the head of Christ. We're talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Does this mean, does this verse mean that the Father is like the CEO and Jesus is like His vice president? Is that what that means? 
no, okay? <laughs> I didn't hear anybody audibly say no, but some people shook your heads. That's good. No, he is not. All right, we have to remove all carnal thinking that we have, all human relationship thinking that we have. Even the terms father and son, we have to think of in a different way when we think of the Godhead, right? We can't take our relationships and then project them back on the eternal Godhead. And this requires some deep thinking. So if you haven't grabbed those mints yet, now would be a good time to pop a mint in because we are going to cover some deep theology here, and we need to cover deep theology. It's a shame that so many uh, pulpits across America refuse to do, to do this, and I'm thankful uh, that in this church we not only tolerate but embrace theology and that the other pastors of this church teach it. So let's think deeply about these things. First thing we need to understand is the eternal relationship of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So moving out of the incarnation and thinking about the eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, we need to recognize, first of all, that the Son is begotten by the Father. We know this. Uh, Jesus is the Father's only begotten Son. You know this from John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. And that begotten aspect is a unique property of the Son among the three persons. We don't talk about the Father being begotten, do we? We don't speak of the Holy Spirit being begotten. We only speak of the Son being begotten. So it's a unique property of the Son of God. Now, in no sense does this mean born in time. Again, we have to get outside of our human relationships because we can say and we can rightfully say about a father and a son that that human son was begotten by that human father. That means at one point the son didn't exist, and then because of the actions of the father, now the son does exist. And so his existence began here on earth at a certain time in a certain place. That is not what is being described of the father and the son as we speak of the Godhead. We see in the Scriptures that the son is self-existent. This is very important. If you're taking notes, write that down. The son is self-existent. In theology, this is called the aseity of God. He's the uncaused cause. He's the uncreated creator. Have you ever had that question, who made God? Have you had to answer that one yet? Well, no one created God, and that applies to the Son of God. No one made the Son of God. He always has been. He is self-existent. And again, as we look at distinctions, the Father is not called begotten, but the Son is. So what does this mean? If the Son has always existed and the Father has always existed, why is the Son called begotten and the Father is not called begotten? Well, I'm going to give you a, a sentence that'll make your brain bleed a little bit, but you'll just hang in there. The Father is unbegotten, yet the Son is. And the way that this is described in Christian theology is that the Father communicates the divine essence to the Son. The Father communicates the divine essence to the Son. And not only that, but we see that He sends the Son into the world, doesn't He? As we're thinking about distinctions between Father and Son, the Father communicates the divine essence to the Son, He begets the Son, and He sends the Son. Now, the way C.S. Lewis described this, I know some of you like to read C.S. Lewis, when talking about this idea of the Son being begotten and the Father is not, he would use books, but this works too. We have here a box of tissues resting on the pulpit. We could not have this box of tissues at this point in the air if this pulpit wasn't here. Its existence rests upon the pulpit, doesn't it? Otherwise, it would drop. In the same sense, with one major exception, the Son's existence is communicated to Him from the Father. So you say, aha, well, the Father's the pulpit, He was there first, and then the Son came along. Well, that's not true because the Son is eternal and the Father is eternal. So there was never a point in time where there, this arrangement wasn't. There was never a point in time that you could point to and say, well, um, the Son wasn't in existence and then He was begotten. He has always been begotten of the Father. The Son is eternal and He's eternally begotten by the Father. Now, I, I, I see your faces and I know we're not in seminary and I'm giving you seminary level theology here. But you're going to come across this word in your Bible, begotten. And you're also going to come across people that say, well, look, the Father beget the Son. Doesn't that mean that it's just like with us in our family? And that the Heavenly Father beget the Savior? 
Well, no, that's not the case because Jesus said in John 5 that He has life in Himself. How can Jesus have life in Himself if He came into existence at a point in time? He is self-existent. And we understand that the Father not being begotten, yet the Son being begotten, leads us to some difficult articulations, but we're able to think through these things nonetheless. And then you add another complexity to all this, the Holy Spirit who is not begotten, but He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Aha, so the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. That means that the Father and Son have always existed, but then the Holy Spirit was brought into existence. Well, no, Hebrews 9 says the Holy Spirit is eternal. So, you have an eternal procession from the Father and Son with the Holy Spirit. There's no sequence, no time involved. This is eternal. So, if you start asking the question, well, where did the Spirit come from or where did the Son come from? You're asking the wrong question from the beginning. Father, Son, and Spirit always have been. God always has been. There's never been a point in time where God came into existence. There's a difference in relations, though. They relate to one another with unique properties, the Father being unbegotten, the Son being begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeding. There's a difference in relations, though there's not a difference in essence. All three are God. So, hanging in there? (laughs) Maybe not. That's okay. You'll catch up. Just hang in there. So, as we move from the eternal essence of God, how God always has been, Father, Son, and Spirit, none coming before the other. Now let's think about the incarnation, because again, as you look at verse 3 in our text today, you see that the word Christ is being used. This is in reference to the Son of God coming in flesh, the Messiah, the Son incarnate. And while Jesus was on earth, He submitted to the Father with perfect volition. He submitted to the Father with perfect volition. And both of those aspects are critical to understanding what Paul's saying here. First, we need to recognize that Jesus freely came. I read this between the songs earlier, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, it says that we're to have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, that although, this is talking about Jesus, although He existed in the form of God. Now, take your mind back to what we were just talking about. No beginning. He was never created. He wasn't given birth as we were given birth. He has always been God. He existed in the form of God. But he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be used for his own advantage. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He freely came. He existed in the form of God, and He freely came to the earth. Jesus, who is God, out of His own volition, chose to come. And while He was on earth, He perfectly obeyed the Father in all things. Perhaps you're familiar with verses like these in John. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I can, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. As Jesus came to earth and took on flesh, He lived life as a real human being. He was a real human being walking among us. And as a real human being, He was perfect in that He submitted to the Father perfectly in everything. Not one time did He think an off thought or one time did He do something sinful. He also said in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So we see that Jesus freely came, and He freely came to perfectly submit to the Father in all things. God is the head of Christ in that sense. As we think about our, our text today, what does it mean that God is the head of Christ? Well, the Messiah came. He, Jesus, the Son of God, freely chose to come to earth. And as He took on this human nature, He only did the Father's will. He perfectly submitted to the Father in all things. And as it says God here, God is the head, it's speaking of the Father. Father, The Father is the head of Christ in that Jesus perfectly did the Father's will. That's why He came to earth. Now this is mysterious, isn't it? We're 
you can get your brain in a pretzel a little bit as you think through these things. Uh, Doug Wilson says that when we start talking about the relationship within the Godhead, it's kind of like June bugs doing quantum physics. Uh, you might feel like that a little bit. But we have to interpret the verses that are set before us rightly, don't we? And can't you see where you could really go off and ignore the rest of Scripture by just taking God as the head of Christ and then trying to fit whatever interpretation you think it says into there? So we have to be careful with Scripture and seek to understand what God has said. Christ is the Lord of every man. He's the head of every man. The Father is the head of Christ. And then we have this phrase sandwiched in between. The man is the head of a woman. Now, if we accept the first phrase, that Christ is the head of every man, and if we accept the final phrase, that God is the head of Christ, and we can start to wrap our minds around how this works, we have no choice but to accept what's in the middle, right? That the man is the head of a woman. And what Paul is doing here is drawing an analogy. And analogies, like parables, have a point to them. If you carry an analogy or you carry a parable out to its final conclusion and you avoid the point the author is making, you're going to end up in some weird places. Here, Paul is not saying that the husband and wife relationship or the man and woman relationship is exactly like it is between the father and the son. That would end up in some weird places, wouldn't it? So we have to see the point that Paul is making here, and let's follow his inspired line of thinking. He says in this text that the Messiah was found in flesh, yet He is the head of all men. He's Lord. He says that the Messiah, as the God-man, submitted to the Father throughout His earthly life. And now He's saying that women, particularly wives, are to submit to their husbands as their individual authorities. Again, that word head being in reference to authority. There Again, lots of difficulties with interpreting this and lots of disagreements in interpreting this. Uh, One thing you might need to know, might be helpful for you to know, is in the Greek there aren't different words for man and husband or for woman and wife. It's the same Greek word. We have the words woman and wife, and so if we're talking about a woman in her role, in her married role, we would refer refer to her as someone's wife, and we all would get what that means. But in the Greek, sometimes it's difficult to know, does this author mean wife or woman? Does this author mean man or husband? Well, I believe that Paul is talking about husbands and wives specifically in this verse, not men and women generally in this verse. The word for man is singular here. The word for woman is singular here. In the New American Standard, it says that the man is the head of a woman. And it could say a man is the head of a woman because both words are singular. And I don't always get into all these things with you, but because this passage is this passage, I want to get into some of these things so you can understand my reasoning. Also, the word for woman found here is in the genitive case, in the genitive in the Greek, which is possessive. That's the possessive uh, form for the Greek. And so it, it could literally read, as the ESV translates it, the head of a wife is her husband. Now, I think that's a little more... Um, interpretive than it is translative. (laughs) I think they're doing a little more interpreting than they are translating there, but I believe that's what's in view, is that the husband is the head of his wife. And even though Paul's point will broaden throughout this passage to speak of men and women generally, not just husbands and wives in marriage, we have to recognize that a woman has only one head, one authority in her life, which is her husband. Or if she's not married, her father. And if she doesn't have a husband or a father on the earth, well, that's a different sermon, okay? Uh, we, we won't get into that today. Uh, but as, as it goes for married women or women who are in the home, they have one head, either their husband or their father. And next week, we'll see how Paul applies this to head coverings and to hair. But for now, let's trace the broadening of Paul's point that he begins in verse 3 by dropping down to verse 7 and look at verses 7 through 9. He continues this idea about the relationship between men and women, and he says in verse 7, "...for a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from the man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake." And what Paul is going to illustrate through the rest of this passage is that 
though we have different roles, and that's really what's stressed in these verses, there's also a mutual dependence that men and women have and husbands and wives have. But first, let's emphasize what Paul emphasizes in verses 7 through 9, the different roles of men and women. He says, again, starting in the middle of verse 7, that the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. The first thing we need to know is that both sexes were created in God's image. Just to remind you, Genesis 1, 26, for God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And this is key, verse 27, God created man in his own image In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Men and women equally reflect the image of God. They were both equally made in the image of God. There's an equality that exists at that level. And yet, there are complementary purposes for men and women. Men and women don't exist for the same reasons, to have the same roles in all of life all the time. And that gets detailed in chapter 2 of Genesis. We see that God created Adam for what? For working and for keeping the garden. And it wasn't good that Adam would be alone. And so he said, I will make a helper suitable for him. Eve was created to be the helpmate of Adam. Eve was created for Adam's sake. And Adam wasn't created for any other human's sake. It's uh, not something that really rubs well with our contemporary sensibilities, especially in the last several decades since the feminist movement has risen up. And any talk of different roles is just immediately cut off from the beginning. Well, we don't do that with God's Word, do we? We look and see what God has said. Look down at verse 7 with me again and notice the intentional phrasing here, where it says in verse 7 that Man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. It doesn't say that the woman is the image of man. She's, again, equally an image bearer of God with the man. But the man is the glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. She's his his glory. She's not his image, but she's his glory. Woman is the best that could come from man. God took Eve from Adam's side. She was created from man, and she is to be His glory, and she is to be His helper. In Genesis 2.18, as God was looking upon a lonely Adam, He said that it is not good for the man to be alone, and I will be a helper suitable for him. So man is to reflect God's glory in His dominion. The gender, the sex, man, he is to reflect God's glory in dominion. And the fall complicates that, doesn't it? Because we have, for a helper, woman, men, but the fall complicates that, doesn't it, men? In Genesis 3, when God was cursing the man and the woman and the serpent for their sin, He said said to the woman that the man shall rule over you and your desire will be for him. And that's another one of those difficult verses. What does it mean, desire will be for him? But we definitely understand that as man exercises dominion and rule, reflecting the glory of God in so doing, that there's great difficulty, great tension in those relationships with women. Not always, but it certainly comes up as a part of the fall. The man is the glory of God. He reflects God's glory in his ruling, and the woman is his glory in her submission to her husband. And let me encourage you today to think about these things, men and women here, as lifestyles. Don't think of them as break glass in case of emergency. This is what God tells us to do because we just couldn't work it out any other way. This is part and parcel to His design for you. God has designed us with with, with a certain intention. He's designed us that we would live in a certain way and reflect His design in our relationships. And so we don't try to do it our way, and then in the end, when it all doesn't work out, we say, okay, what did God tell us to do? Oh yeah, the man gets to say what the, what the final say is, and the woman has to submit. That's not what God created us for. 
He created us for a loving, complementary existence together. And this is a special relationship reserved for His image bearers only. You notice with the animals, He didn't create only male animals and say, oh, wow, they're, they're alone, and then He took from each of their sides and made female animals. He only did that with the ones who bear His image. He's intentionally teaching us something, not just in you know, what's plainly stated as, as an abstract statement about life, but even in the process of creation, in the process of bringing men and women into existence, He's teaching us something in the process, that it's not good for man to be alone and that there is to be a helper suitable for him. The omniscient God designed this process to emphasize the roles that He purposed. And here we start to see the point broaden, not just within marriages, but even in the rest of society. Look down with me at verse 11. Paul goes on to say, In the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as or for a covering. Wow, pretty intense passage there. Uh, again, all the juicy stuff we'll get to next week. This is my whole uh, big strategy to get you to come back, okay? Uh, we'll talk about all the juicy stuff next week. It's always next week. <clears throat> but here in these verses, Paul focuses on men and women more generally and even in the church. Notice in verse 11, he uses the phrase, in the Lord, in the Lord. He's uh, talking about in Christ, that we are not independent of one another. We need each other in Christ, in the church, to serve God rightly, don't we? We can't do it alone, can we, men? What would the nursery ministry look like without women, men? There would be lots of duct tape. Uh, <clears throat> and you women, what would the lawns look like without the men? We have, we have several men who just take care of our lawns, spraying the weeds, trimming stuff up, making, putting in all the physical effort because it's what they're inclined to do by instinct. Now, I'm not saying women can't be landscapers. There are some landscapers that are much better than men, but these men are putting in the work and sweating and doing something that's complementary in our church. We need each other to serve God rightly, and the church needs both male and female. And ever since Eve was created, men and women depend on each other for their existence. Look at verse 12. As the woman originates from the man... So also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. All things come from God. We're dependent both on each other and on God. Robert Gramacki said this, I like the way this was phrased, the woman needed the man to begin her existence, and the man needs the woman to continue his existence. In both areas, man and woman must recognize that they are equally under the authority of God, who is the source of both their physical and spiritual lives. I thought that was a good summary. All things come from God, and we're dependent on Him. And we have these distinct roles that, of course, Paul's already brought up. We're going to look at more and more. But these distinct roles are never to be held onto to the exclusion of our equality in essence. It's not that man is superior to it's not that woman is inferior to man or anything like that. It has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. But there are distinct roles. And one last argument of Paul's that we'll look at today for this point, that we have different roles and we are mutually dependent on each other, is this little phrase in verse 14 where Paul asks, does not even nature itself teach you? Does not even nature itself teach you? Now, that's an interesting phrase. Nature teaches God's order. The world around us that we're living in, though it's fallen, it teaches God's order. And so Paul here is moving from the text of Genesis, and he's giving an argument from nature itself. And the idea comes about that all people, not even just Christians, but all people, even the lost, naturally follow God's order in many ways. 
Turn with me back to Romans. It's the book right before 1 Corinthians, Romans chapter 2, and look with me at verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And I want us to get a good grasp on this because this is the argument that Paul's using. Let's see how Paul has talked about nature in other passages. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that there are natural instincts that God has made, has placed within human beings, even fallen human beings, that they are to follow and that they naturally follow. These distinctions exist in many areas of life, certainly not just within marriage. But Romans 2 is here teaching that in God's common grace, He has, in His great power and His great mystery, He has worked it about that even those around us in our community who don't know the Lord Jesus, who, whose spirits haven't been saved, they haven't been regenerated, they are still not as bad as they could be. And isn't that just very striking? When you understand the existence of sin and when you understand just how deep that root goes, why is it that we aren't seeing more horrendous things in our culture today? You know, many of us are pretty horrified by the things we see on the news, and rightly so. But why isn't there more? What's stopping there from being more? What's stopping two totally unsaved, totally secular people living in the same neighborhood from cheating one another and stealing from one another? What's stopping them from doing these things? And Romans 2 teaches us it's a work of God. In God's common grace, He's hindering sin not only externally but even internally in the lost. And we can't outline everything that that means, but it says in verse 14 in Romans 2 that it's something that they do instinctively. And that's our same word as found in chapter 11 when Paul says, doesn't nature itself teach you? It's the same word, just in a different form. They, by nature, do the things of the law, it could say. It's an instinct that God has as He works through conscience in the individual. This has to do, again, with the image of God. Not only do saved men and women have the image of God equally, but all men and women have the image of God equally, even those who don't know God. And at the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, that image wasn't obliterated. Now, there's certainly a disconnect between the creation and the Creator. There's a disconnect between human beings and their God, but the image of God is still there. And what remains of the image of God remains only by the grace of God, because He's hindering sin and working in the lives of even the lost. And it says, again, in our verses here, verse 15 of Romans chapter 2, it says that these Gentiles, those who don't know God, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Who wrote that in their hearts? Well, it had to be God Himself. He wrote the work of the law in their hearts. It's not the law itself. That's a new covenant promise. When you believe in Jesus Christ and you're a partaker of the new covenant, according to Ezekiel 37, the law itself will be written on your heart. And that's what we've begun to enjoy as the church. But this is something different. It's the work of the law written in their hearts. So it's not the inward conversion, but it's the external obeying of the works of the law, that they're still able to do this because of the work of God, hindering sin in the culture. And of course, in verse 15, it also says that in their thoughts, they're alternately guilty or justifying themselves in their sin. What do they do with these works? They know that it's wrong to cheat on their spouses. They know it's wrong to steal from work. They know it's wrong to lie. So they're being accused. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. They're being convicted. And their thoughts alternately feeling guilty or justifying themselves. Isn't that a great mystery? But doesn't that also just make sense? What's happening in the world around us? What was happening in your life before you came to know the Lord? So this is why people aren't as bad as they would be but we do know the world is still a fallen place. 
Turn back with me to the first chapter of Romans. Paul uses the same terminology in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Romans 1, 24, it says, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts, this is talking about the lost, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural, there's our word again, the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So we see what's happened with nature, that God in His common grace is hindering sin among the lost, and yet we also see God lifting His hand of common grace. God lifting His hand of grace, working in the hearts of people where He's giving them over to their sin. And what happens when they're given over to their sin? Well, according to Romans 1, they start going against nature. They start going against the natural instinct that God has put in them because He's giving them over to their sin. And men exchanging the natural use of the woman, it says, to be with men. And women doing the same. God is giving them over to go against nature. Not all of the culture will reflect natural instinct that God has given us as a part of His image, especially as God begins to withdraw His hand of grace. So homosexuality, according to Paul here in Romans 1, and according to the whole testimony of God, is unnatural. It goes against God's design. It's unnatural. And it was a widespread issue then. Perhaps you've heard some about the first century Roman emperors that existed during Paul's day. These leaders of many, many people, they were committing these very indecent acts that Paul is talking about. They were committing these acts. And yet Paul is sitting back and saying, I know that's what our culture is doing, much of our culture. I know that's what our leaders are doing, but it's still unnatural. And so you have to grasp this as if you're going to understand the argument he's making in chapter 11. Paul is saying that the culture doesn't determine what's natural. God does. The culture doesn't get to determine what should be the good and right instinct. God does. God has a design and an order for the world. I like the way C.K. Barrett, a commentator, talked about this word for natural. He says that every time this Greek word is used, there's a reference to things as they truly are, not to things that should change. This word comes up 11 or 13 times in the New Testament, and each time it's being used, it's talking about the way things truly are. Those of us who are Jewish by nature, that's how they truly are. That's what they are. And here, where it talks about the roles of men and women sexually in verses 26 and 27, we're speaking of the way things should be, the way, things God, ha- the way God has created things, the way they truly are. And when they go against those things, They're not saying that nature has changed. They're showing themselves to be unnatural in their actions. You can't change nature. As hard as some people try. As God removes His grace from among certain people and certain cultures, the unnatural begins to manifest itself, but it's still unnatural. So how does that apply to our passage (laughs) back in 1 Corinthians 11? Well, Paul argues from nature in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 14. He argues from nature as evidence for instructions for the church. He's giving the church instructions, and he's taking that argument from nature, just as he did in Romans, to give instructions to the church. And those instructions will be explained in more detail next week. (laughs) But let me, as we land the plane today, let me leave you with this encouragement and this challenge regarding what is good and what is natural. The church has been given more than instinct from God, haven't we? We are not the lost. We are not the world. We're the church. We've been redeemed by God, and we've been given more than just instinct. 
We've been given God's Word, His special revelation, and we've been given His Holy Spirit, haven't we? We've been given His Word and His Spirit. And when we think about the church and how we are to live together, that's Paul's focus from chapters 11 through 14, the phase that we've just entered into in the letter. As we exist together as the church, God's design is to be reflected here. God's design is to be most reflected here. His design is to be restored among His people. As we read and learn and grow, we should be able to reflect more of the godly instinct that God has given us and detailed through His Word, and as we're led by His Spirit. Because we're being conformed to Christ's image, aren't we? Even though we're made in God's image, what does it say in Romans 8, 29? We are being conformed to the image of Christ. It's a process. So God's design and order in the world should be restored in the church. And that's why it's particularly egregious, not just when things are twisted out there in the world, but when things get twisted in the church. We can theologically understand why things are twisted in the world. They're fallen men doing what fallen people do, and the unnatural bubbles up. But in the church, those who gather to proclaim the name of Christ, those who have been redeemed and are being conformed to the image of Christ, God's design is to be upheld here, to be restored. So let's not only hear what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11, but let's hear why he's saying it. Not just what he's saying, but why he's saying it. Today we looked at arguing from the Godhead. He was arguing from God's created design. He was arguing from nature. And next week we'll look at more of the foundation and the significance for today. But I think we need to grasp these basic principles and continue to remind ourselves of those seven things I gave you on that card as we walk through this passage, having an open heart to wherever God would lead. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us, how you are so patient and kind and faithful. We thank you for the gospel, and we thank you that you've given us purpose and order in this life, that this life isn't a blank canvas for us to just invent a purpose, but that this life is for hearing from you and conforming to that purpose. God, give us just great insight as to how we do this, that we would honor you rightly in the way that we live and the decisions we make and in this church. Lord, thank you so much. You are so patient and merciful. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.